The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 9. One of the biggest challenges that I face every single week as I get ready for Sunday's message is, is the blank piece of paper that sits in front of me. Um, I always start out a series um, months and months in advance by, by rewriting the entire text and um, thinking about it and praying through it. And that never gets any easier because on Monday, I start off with a blank piece of paper for what we're going to talk about the coming Sunday. And a lot of times that is made more difficult by, by what is actually in the text. And as I read through and as I've been reading through and thinking about and praying about Romans chapter 9, there are several very challenging texts in Romans chapter 9. Um, I don't know if you noticed that. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to share three um, with you. One of them is verse, verse 13. It says, In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. That's a quote, actually, from the Old Testament, from Malachi, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And the Hebrew says, Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. So what does that mean? Verse 16 So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. What does that mean? Here's verse 18. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. What does that mean? What do we do with these verses? How do we, how do we reconcile them? And, I, and as I've been thinking about, and we talked about this in our staff, um, staff review last week, we need to remember our first rule for interpreting the Bible. Um, the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. So as we're reading this text, we need to remember that the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. And Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 7. He says, I'm writing to all of you in Rome. Right? So the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. And here's, here's the second rule. And I, we had a conversation a couple Wednesday nights ago in small group. We're reading this book by Dan Kimball called How Not to Read the Bible. And I think it was Nat Johnson said something like, um, when we hit the, the Bible is written uh, for us, but not to us. He goes, you've said that a bunch of times. Did you steal that from Dan Kimball? And my answer is no, I stole it from somebody else. And so did Dan Kimball. Okay? But here's the second, um, second rule of good biblical interpretation. It cannot mean to us what it first did not mean to them. Does that make sense? When we read the Bible, it can't mean to us something different than what it first meant to that original reader. And here's what both of these kind of rules mean for us. Our primary task when reading the Bible is to figure out how they would have read it is to figure out how they would have understood it. What did it mean to those original people? And this is one of the chapters in Romans, like last week, where, where the audience are the Jewish believers. And we only know this, like he, uh, the previous, uh, or a few chapters ago, Paul said something like, I'm, to my brothers and sisters, to my Hebrew brothers and sisters, I say this. He really doesn't say that in chapter 9, so we have to do a little digging. And what we'll see is there are a ton of Old Testament verses referenced in chapter 9. 
I had someone today, and this just warms the little heart of your pastor. If you, if you want to know, know how to get into my heart, you can come up to me before the 1015 and say, I read in three different versions of the Bible, I read chapter 9 all week long. And I can't, I can't wait to talk about it today. And what we talked about was just the number of Old Testament references in Romans chapter 9. So we know that Paul's audience for Romans 9, for this portion of the letter, is the Hebrews. Because he's throwing all of these Old Testament verses at them. And one of the things that we have to remember, and this is about those three difficult to understand verses for us. One of the things that we have to remember, um, when he quotes, when Paul quotes what we call the Old Testament, we are reading an English translation of a Greek translation of an original document written in Hebrew, or in some cases, Aramaic. So are you following that? When we read the Bible in English, we are reading a Greek, uh, an English translation of a Greek document. And when he quotes the Old Testament, we're adding one more layer of language to it. And what this means is, is this is going to require some work for us. To figure out what's going on. And in the, case of, in the case of Romans, Paul is utilizing a text originally meant for someone else. So Paul's quoting the Old Testament and he's contextualizing it for his readers. And then we get to read it 2,000 years later. No wonder we can't figure out what it means. Right? No wonder we have a hard time reading and understanding what the Bible is saying to us. Which is why we have to do work. We have to be careful. Let's, let's talk through chapter 9 Uh, together this morning, beginning at verse 1. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. See, it's interesting what Paul's been doing over the past few chapters is he's been talking about all of the blessings that come from the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And if Paul has all of those blessings of the Holy Spirit in his life, we have them too. This is not just reserved for the heroes of the faith. This is not just reserved for people who lived in New Testament times. Paul's been talking about all of the blessings, all of the richness, the fullness of God that's available to us because of the Holy Spirit. And here, it's interesting, he adds something new. See, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, he is filled with sorrow and grief over those who are separated from God. It's not just the good things that Paul has from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul's filled with sorrow and grief over those who don't know who Jesus is. So we ask the question, right? This is, I really think that Romans chapter 9 is a perfect Q&A chapter. We have to ask this question, well, why is Paul filled with unending or bitter sorrow and unending grief? Well, Paul answers the question. He says this, they, his brothers and sisters, they are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him. And receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. Christ was one of them. An Israelite as far as human nature was concerned. And he, Christ, is God who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. 
Here's, here's the translation. Here's what Paul is communicating. These Israelites, his, Hebrews, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, literally had everything they could ever want from God. God gave them blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing and relationship and opportunity to connect with him and his law. He gave them all of these things. Well, if that's the case, then, then why, are they, why are they cut off? If they have all of this, why are they cut off? And this is Paul's, this is the question that's being asked. Well then, has God, fulfill, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? Like he gave them all these things and there's still people who are out. So did God fail? Is the reason they are out because God did something wrong? Because God gave them all this stuff and they're not in. Did God do something wrong? Question. This is right from the text. Well, then has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel, right? There has to be some reason that God's people were cut off. And as humans, what we tend to do is we want to blame God, right? That's what Paul's saying. Was God failed? Like, there has to be a reason that people are cut off from God, so it must be God's fault. There must be a reason that I'm going through this hardship or, or challenge or, or tragedy in my life. It must be God's fault. Listen to what Paul says. No, not everyone who is born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them his children. Again, this is, this is how we know that Paul is, Paul is speaking to his Jewish readers here. And he's going to do a lot of quoting from the Old Testament. The first one is from Genesis 21.12. It says, Isaac is the son, and this is in Romans. Quoting Genesis, Isaac is the son through whom your, Abraham, descendants will be counted, even though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise, that's through Isaac, are considered to be his children. As we talked about this last week, Here's, here's the principle. This is what Paul is writing to the church in Rome. There is a way to be biologically connected to God's people and not be one of them. There's a way to be biologically connected to God's people and not be one of them. See, salvation is not something we inherit. Salvation is not our birthright. Salvation is not something we are born into. It really doesn't matter who your parents or your grandparents were when it comes to your faith. Now, they teach you and they train you and it's their job to equip you. But just because your great-grandmother was this wonderful, faithful follower of Christ, that literally means nothing for your relationship with God doesn't get you anything. It doesn't matter how faithfully they served God. See, your standing with God literally has nothing to do with any other person. And what's really interesting about that is, is that's good news. That's really good news. Because there's also a way to not be biologically connected to God's people and still be one of them. And here's what this means. 
It doesn't matter what your parents or your grandparents did. They could have been the worst people in history. They could have a long list of sins. They could be terrible parents, terrible grandparents. You could have terrible brothers and terrible sisters. And the good news about this is it doesn't matter how unfaithfully they served God. You have the opportunity to faithfully serve God. It doesn't matter what they did. It doesn't matter what they didn't do. See, this is, this is a role that we take on as individuals. That's what Paul is saying here, quoting Genesis. See, all these people, all these Jews, they thought they were automatically in because they were connected to Abraham. And Paul, quoting Genesis, is essentially saying, not so fast. I don't know how you think this relationship with God works, but that's not it. You did not inherit your salvation. Just going to keep reading through Romans 9. For God promised, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. That's Genesis 18, 10, and verse 14. The son was our ancestor, Isaac. See, this is a great cue that Paul is talking directly to the Hebrew people in Rome. The son was our ancestor, Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. And before they were born, but before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. Your older son will serve your younger son. This is all taking place in Genesis verse 25, 19 through 26. And I'm going to read this. And this isn't, I did not put this in you version. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayers, prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in the womb, so she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth, covered with a thick hair like a fur coat. So she named him Esau. The other Twin was born with his hand grasping at Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. See, what, what Paul is starting to do here is he's starting to set these two twin brothers apart. And we have to ask this question, why? What's, what's going on? Because one of them will serve the other one. Actually, the wrong one is going to serve the other one. In Hebrew culture, it was always the firstborn male. That was the, that was the chosen one. And for some reason, what God is doing is he's having the, the secondborn be the leader. The older will serve the younger. Here's the point Paul's making. Because they were twins, they were nearly as equal as they could possibly be. They're nearly as equal as they could possibly be. And what God did was he reversed the distinction between them. 
It's not going to be the younger serves the older. It's going to be the older serves the younger. This happened before they were born. So nothing that Jacob or Esau did affected God's grace. Before they're even born. Before they're even born. God is telling them that that they're equal. And then Paul writes, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Tough verse. What do we do with this? What does it mean? Well, what we ought to do is we ought to stop. We ought to go back to Malachi and we ought to see what, what, what Malachi was talking about. So let's flip to Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. You should know that the people have returned from captivity in Babylon. They spent seven years in Babylon. They've come home and they're starting to rebuild. They're starting to to be filled with the desire to be like the nation that God had called them to be. And here is their question. Now that we're home, after 70 years of, of captivity, now that we're home, what's the relationship between us and God like? How do we interact with God? They also returned home, if you remember your history, they returned home and there's all these people there who weren't there before. Because one of the things that the Assyrians and the Babylonians did was they imported people into those areas who weren't from there. This kind of sounds like Rome, right? The Hebrews are exiled from Rome and then they come home and all of a sudden the Gentiles are in charge of all the churches. Paul is being so strategic in his Old Testament references. What do we do with the covenant? Well, this is what the Israelites do. You would think after 70 years of captivity, they'd be good boys and girls. But what do they do? They return to the same bad behaviors that got them sent into captivity in the first place. They have the form of worship without the meaning. They're doing all of the right things, but from the wrong motives. Malachi 1. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I've always loved you, says the Lord. But you, the people, retort, really? How have have you loved us? Imagine saying that to God. Really? How have you loved us? And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated the hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants and Edom may say, well, we have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, they may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. How would you like that as your email signature? When you see the destruction for yourselves, you'll say truly the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. See, here's, here's what's going on here. So we have to go back and read the story using Jacob 
as a representation of the Israelites and using Esau as a representation of the Edomites, he says, I gave you everything. I gave you everything. And Esau, you rejected me. The Edomites rejected me. And if you want to know when that rejection started, if you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, you'll remember when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. See, God has, God has shown his mercy to both Jacob and Esau. And what, how does Esau respond? What does he do? So here's the next question. Well, is God unfair? That's our question, right? Is God unfair? Answer, of course not. God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. That's Exodus 33, 19. And here's our second tough verse. So it is God who decided to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. We can't choose God's mercy, and we can't work for God's mercy. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. And here's the third tough verse. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so that they refuse to listen to him. What do we do with these? What does that mean that God hardens hearts? How do we deal with this text? This is when we have to remember what we've been reading. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, or in Romans 1, he says, I've revealed who I am through creation. And in verse 24, he says, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. So they see God, they know about God, and what do they do? They reject him. They see all of these blessings, they have access to all of these blessings, and they reject him. And what does God do? He abandons them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Verse 26, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Verse 28 of chapter 1, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. This is what it means when we read that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. What he did was he said, Pharaoh, if you want to follow your heart, do it. Do it. Pursue anything you want to pursue. You know the truth. You know reality. Go. And this is why follow your heart is literally the worst advice you could ever tell anyone. Romans 1 is what you get when people follow their hearts. See, what God has done is he's hardened Pharaoh's heart. And not like, I'm going to make sure he can't hear anything. Pharaoh wants nothing to do with God. And because God is, God is a God of love and believe it or not, mercy what he's going to do is he's going to let us go our own way. And my guess is that there are a lot of people here in the room who have gone their own way. 
who know this is reality. I don't want to do anything with God, so I'm going to do whatever I want to. And what many of you have come out of that is, you know what, following my heart, that wasn't such great advice. Maybe I shouldn't follow my heart. Maybe I shouldn't do whatever I want to, which goes back to, remember we talked about this last week, I do the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I do. Right? God is, God is doing something here. And then, like, the crazy thing is, is we think that God does this because he's mean. We think that God, we think that God allows us to follow our own hearts because he, he hates us. Here's reality. When we follow our own hearts, we hate God. And then we have the audacity to accuse him of, of letting us get into the situations that we ourselves created. Of allowing us to find, to be in, a, to be in a, a, a situation, a happenstance where I put myself into and then I'm going to be mad at God. God, why'd you let me do that? Anybody ever thought that? Why would God have allowed me to do that? Well, you have a brain, you have free will, you can make the choice. Right? We just, we don't choose God. And we think that that's not fair, which is literally the next question in Romans 9. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay... Doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he's very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who are prepared in advance for glory. See, here's, here's what Paul is saying. God's response to our sinfulness could be to simply destroy the whole thing, right? To just wipe all of the evil people out. I mean, he did that back in Genesis. So this is God's right, justified response. But instead, he does something that is, that is really strange. He's patient. Why? Well, in Romans chapter 2, Paul wrote this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does that mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? See, while we're all waiting for God to destroy all of the evil people in the world, what if I told you that God actually has a plan for them to repent of their sin? What if I told you, what if I told you that you might be the person through whom God's grace is demonstrated and it is because of your kindness and your love and your grace and your mercy that's going to lead them to Christ. Several years ago, I remember reading, reading through Romans particularly Romans 8 and 9. And I thought to myself, you know, I do not believe in predestination. I do not believe in election. 
But man, these, these verses sure make me want to. I feel, the, I feel the pull and I feel the push of these verses. And isn't that, isn't that just like us? To take a text from the Bible and make it about something it's not? I think when we start making this about predestination and election, what we do is we start to make this a matter of who's in and who's out. Who's included, who is excluded. Which is really ironic because what we've been reading today, we see that it's God who determines on whom his grace falls. See, when we start thinking about who is in and who's out, we're leaving, we're leaving the most important person in the story out. We're leaving God out. We're starting to make judgments over who's in and who's out. And it's even more ironic that Paul is writing this. And then what we do with this text, it's even more ironic because Paul's letter is a letter of inclusion to the gospel. It's not about exclusion. See, what the Jews want to do is they want to keep the Gentiles out because the Gentiles, Gentiles aren't keeping the law. And the Gentiles, they want to keep the Jews out because all the Jews talk about is the law. And there's this dividing line between them. And what Paul is telling them is stop. If you're a parent and you have two kids, have you ever just wanted to walk between your kids and like pull them apart and just yell stop? But this is what Paul is doing here. He's seeing and observing all the things that the Jews and the Gentiles are doing. What they've made God's church out to be and he's telling them to stop. These verses are not verses about predestination and election. They're just not. That's not what Paul was thinking about. It's not what Paul had on his mind. What Paul had on his mind was two groups of people who both claimed the same Lord and they were pursuing him in very different ways. They were working against their pursuit by working against their brothers and sisters. And as I said, the reason like I'm not feeling this, this tension right now of reading these verses and being like, man, predestination and election, they sound like it's pulling me. I think I might believe in that. It's because honestly, like I'm reading these verses in their context. We're spending time talking about what it says. And it's not about those two things. And if I just want to caveat, if you believe in predestination and election here, you are welcome to do that. I don't want you to feel like you're at odds with, with us as a church. Like you can, that, you can believe in that. I would say that's a second or third tier thing. The things that we care about here at Westway is like, do you believe that Jesus is the Lord? And if, and if you happen to believe that, that you get there through predestination, that's okay. You can believe that. And if you happen to believe that you get there through free will, that's okay. You can believe that. We'll get to heaven. We'll talk about it and you'll be wrong and that'll be okay. <laughs> but you are well, like you're allowed to be here. 
Okay? And, and maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe you'll tell me. I have a hint that we won't care. <laughs> there's not a Calvinist section of heaven and there's not an Arminian section of heaven. That would be the opposite of what Paul's talking about here. Okay? Paul says this. We are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. We, we, I, Paul, you, Hebrews, you, Gentiles, we are among those whom he selected. One of the crazy things about that little, man, little throwaway word, among those, that means there are people outside the church of Rome who are actually Christians. We're just among them. Think about that for a second. That means there are people who don't come to Westway Christian Church on a Sunday morning, who go to other churches in Scotts Bluff, who believe it or not, are Christians. Isn't that, man, pray, isn't that awesome? See, we're not the only ones. And, and again, there's not going to be a Westway Christian Church sect. I hope we have, I hope we have reunions. But there's not like a specific section in heaven for this, right? And then what Paul is going to do is he's going to proof text to death the Jews in Rome over the next number of verses. I'm just going to read through these. Concerning the Gentiles, and he's going to prove it, right? We are among those, I'm going to reread, we are among those who he, whom he selected both from the Jews and the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who are not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Okay, there's a group of people who weren't in, and now all of a sudden they're in. Why? Because God told them they were. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of the children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Paul answers that question. He actually asks it. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Question, why not? Answer, because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Now that's a combo of both Isaiah 8, 14 and Isaiah 28, 16. See, this idea of a stone is found elsewhere in Scripture. These, I would love for you, 
to be so familiar with scripture that when you see stuff like this, your brain just floods with other scripture references. You don't have to know the reference. Like if you know the reference, that's like you have a master's degree in Bible if you know the reference. I'm like somewhere in kindergarten. I can remember like a part of a verse. So Google is my best friend. I just type in the part of the verse I know and then I just find it. And can I, t- can I free you up? That's okay. If that's you and that's where you are, it's okay. You're allowed to do that. But one of the verses that came to my brain thinking about the stone is Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes that in Matthew 21 verse 42, referring to himself as the stone. How have the builders rejected him? In John chapter 5, Jesus says this to the gathered Jewish leaders who have come against him and want to kill him. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to believe to come to me to receive this life. If that's not an attack on our Bible memorization, like on our personal trophies of Bible memorization... I don't know what is. See, there's a way for us to be so familiar with the Bible that we miss who the Bible's about. What God through Jesus is offering is is new life. And this is to everyone. This is for everyone. This is for everyone. And once we accept this new life, every single one of us has a mission. Every single one of us has a purpose. Every single one of us has something that we are to do. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 9. This one is in you version. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. See, there it is. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Listen to this next verse. But you and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We're going to talk about that in Romans 12. As the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Does that sound familiar? Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you, you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And I'm going to read verse 10. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Here's what Paul is doing 
in his 7,114 Greek word letter. He's warning the churches. We talked about this in Romans chapter 1. He's warning the churches against divisions caused by people who want to reject others based on their ethnicity, based on their race, based on their economic status, based on their culture, or based on insignificant religious issues. Paul is calling the churches, the people who are included in the gospel of Jesus in Rome to embody and live out the principles of humility and sacrifice demonstrated by Jesus. He's telling them to look at Jesus and mimic his behavior. To be like Jesus. To follow Jesus. To do what Jesus would do in a given situation. He's saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to everyone. It's available to anyone. God's mercy. God shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. And as demonstrated by creation, that's pretty much everybody. God has made the gospel available to everyone. And regardless of your name or your background or your history or your race, now that you're saved, you are called to live on mission, united as one body. This is what we're called to. One mission. One thing. The way we talk about that here, it's written on the wall. Proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's our job. Not to talk about Calvinism, Arminianism, fight about these things, but to proclaim Jesus as Lord. If you're, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you need to know that nothing, not your name, not your background, not your ethnic identity, not your history, nothing can keep you from receiving God's grace. Nothing. Except for one thing. Your pride. Your pride. See, you can actually keep yourself from God and his grace. You can make the decision to not take advantage of what God is offering to you. And I wonder, I hope that maybe, will today be the day that you lay your pride down? Will today be the day that you see God's grace for what it is, a free gift, and just decide to be obedient? If you are here this morning and you, you consider yourself a Christian, I'd love for you to ask yourself how you came to that conclusion. Do you, do you think that you were grandfathered in? Do you think it's because you keep the scriptures? Do you think that you're in because you're a good moral person? If, if that's why you think you're a Christian, good news, bad news. Bad news first. Everybody likes their vegetables before their dessert. The bad news is those things don't make you a Christian. The good news is a relationship with Jesus does. And what would it look like for you to give up your pride, to give up your self-righteousness and give yourself over to Jesus?
And then lastly, if you are a Christian, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. You are holy priests. You are inseparable from God's love. You're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit. And each and every one of us knows people who don't know Christ. What are your thoughts towards them? Are you ambivalent towards them? Are you apathetic towards them? Are you filled with grief and bitter sorrow? Because they don't have Christ. What we're seeing in Romans is that Paul is calling the body to be unified for the purpose of those who don't know Christ. Helping them know who Jesus is. This is what we have been invited into. This is the reason we gather on Sunday mornings. This is the reason we have small group. This is the reasons we do Wednesday night. This is the reason we do all the things that we do as a church because we have a mission. Will you accept it? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your goodness. We're grateful for the way that you have included us, a people who don't belong. Elsewhere, it says in Romans that we have been adopted into your family. That's each and every one of us. You've adopted us. Pray that we would cast aside our old identities, our false identities, and be willing to be adopted by you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.